chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2. We traveled to South Carolina this week, and uh, we left on, on Thursday morning, and uh, my niece, it's my wife's sister's daughter, but I guess it's my niece too, uh, I think she was only four or five years old when my wife and I met and started uh, dating, and then of course I think she was six when we got married, and uh, so I've watched her grow up, and uh, it's exciting to see that, but we, we uh, uh, I didn't want to miss this morning and uh, being here in our church, and so... Uh, we, we left after the wedding yesterday afternoon. I think we got home about 11.30 or 12 o'clock last night. And uh, I, I, I was just, it, it, my, my, Becca can't do anything in the car when we're driving. So I, she drives a lot of times and I sit in the passenger seat and I just work the whole time. So uh, I did that last night and uh, just, I, I think, uh, you ever heard of Bucky's? Does anybody know what Bucky's is? Boy, it's a, it's a, it's a gas station uh, I say gas station. It's hard to even call it a gas station, but we first came across them in Texas, and uh, everything is bigger in Texas, and I think that's where it started, and, uh, but they just put one in in Tennessee, right down there, uh, Tennessee, uh, Florence, South Carolina, uh, as you're heading down south, and it's right off of 95. This place is, is, is so much bigger than you can even comprehend. They have 120 gas pumps at this one. And uh, the, 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 the store literally looks like you're walking into a Walmart. It's, it's bigger than a lot of the smaller Walmarts. That's how big it is inside. I mean, if you're ever going south on 95, you've got to stop in there and see it. But um, it's uh, Florence, South Carolina. I don't know. It's probably about five hours from here. But once we, once we stopped there and, and filled up with gas, we made the straight shot. And just we didn't stop again until we got here. So my eyes are still spinning from looking at a computer the entire time in the dark on my way up. So if I start jumbling my words, it's not that I'm, uh, there's something wrong with me. I'm probably, I'm probably have the words jumbled on the page or my eyes are still spinning uh, either way. But Philippians chapter 2 is, is a great passage. And we're just going to look at a couple verses in there this morning. But, you know, the, the, the bad news and the news of, of people being bad seems to keep piling up. And, and, and honestly, I know I'm the same way that you are. You're the same way that I am, however you want to say that. People, we're, we're sickened by the blatant rebellion against God, against the Word of God in this country, uh, against what's true, against what's good, against what's decent. And it's, you know, it, it was abhorrent a couple of years ago, and, and I, it's just still, it's burned in my mind to, to think and, and to, to see the videos of uh, the governor of New York signing into law uh, an abortion, uh, an abortion law that made it legal to kill a baby almost up to birth. And the moment she signed that, everybody that was there in the in the crowd just broke out cheering. You know, hey, we get to kill babies all the way up until right before they're born. To to cheer about something like that, it was disgusting to listen to our former governor. Uh, Ralph Northam talk about and, and try to defend his, his comments on infanticide. I don't know what would have happened had uh, the likes, Ralph Northam and those that were like him, been allowed to get in again. He was pushing for uh, abortion up to two weeks after a baby is born. A baby is born and you have two weeks to decide on whether or not you want to keep the baby or not. And if you don't, then you can go kill it. I mean, that, that is just the rebellion against everything that we find in the Word of God. And it's not, just every, it's not just what we find in the Word of God. It's a rebellion against everything that's decent and everything that's moral and everything that's just inherently right in our own minds. Our beloved nation is quickly moving toward the judgment of God. We need a spiritual awakening. 
One of the dangers for God's people in our culture is allowing conservatism to distract us from Christ. Now, I'm a conservative. Uh, I'm, I'm conservative, and I don't think it's a, a secret. It's not like you didn't know where I stand politically. Um, I, I'm a Republican, but, I, but conservatism comes first. And where the Republicans go against conservatism, I go against the Republicans. But I'm a Christian before I'm a conservative. So where conservatism goes against Christianity, I go against conservatism. I'm a Christian first and foremost, and I think what happens a lot of times is too much talk radio and too much political commentary clouds the minds and it steals the heart. Now, I like talk radio just as much as the next guy. Be informed, stay active, vote the right way, keep your eyes on Jesus. Politicians change. What is accepted legally and morally is going to change. The only thing that stays the same is the Word of God. The only thing that stays the same is Christianity, or at least it should stay the same because it's, it should be based on the Word of God. Only the Word of God never changes, and so we need to root ourselves and we need to root our families in what is eternal. Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 15 says this, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. And I think for, for any Christian that has any kind of desire to live for God, it stirs our hearts to see what's happening in this nation. And the great need that there is around us. And there's something in all of us, I think, that cries out, what can we do? What can we do about that? And I, and I think that's, that's a lot of what's driving the political activism and the conservative side. We've got to do something to get this nation back. So we need more people involved in politics. And I'm not against that. We need more Christians involved in politics. We need more people who will get out there and vote conservatively, who will get out there and vote the principles of the word of God. And I'm all for that. And I'm not saying that, there's, that we shouldn't be doing those things or that we shouldn't even be actively involved in, in political campaigns and all of those kind of things. But this morning, what I want to talk to you about is what to do in a wicked world. What is it specifically that we can do that will be impactful in this world that we're living in today? Everybody's, everybody has a specific area of talent or influence, so God will have to lay on your heart specifically what you can do in this wicked world. But I think there are three things that we find very clearly in the Word of God that all of us should be doing in addition to whatever it is that God's given you the special ability or talent to do. And those are the things that I want to look at this morning. But let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get into this. Father, we love you. Give me thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for an opportunity we have to open your word. I pray that you would help us to, to be lights in this world, and that we would show forth the truth of the word of God, and that we be Christians that stand for something because we're standing on the word of God, regardless of what the political winds uh, ch how the political winds change, regardless of what direction the rest of the world is going in, regardless of what the direction that the rest of Christianity is going in. I pray that you'd help us to stand true and firm on the word of God. And God, I pray that you'd help us and give us some insight this morning on what we can do in this wicked world to help turn it back to you. So thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn over to John chapter 13, if you will. I think the first thing that every one of us should do in this wicked world, number one, is to love sinners. Love sinners. A world that's hardened by sin is producing harsher and harsher people. 
Society is filled with hate and anger. And boy, it's, it, 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 all it's going to take is a, a, is a little bit of lighting that powder keg again, but you really saw it uh, happening so much in, uh, in, in, the, in the summers of the last couple of years in some of these cities uh, where it was just, I, I mean, it was anarchy in the streets, it seemed like. And they had these autonomous zones where no police, no, you know, no authority figures allowed to be in this area. And they just, well, they did whatever they wanted to do, but it was just, it was, it was all fueled by hate and anger. And, and, and the one thing that is, that is to set Christ followers apart is the love of God in us. We see that in John chapter 13 and verse 35. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. I think that's brotherly love. I think that's love amongst Christians, but I think it's just love in general for people. We ought to have a desire to see the best for people. As we fight the devil and oppose the rising tide of wickedness, we cannot forget to love those people that are lost and drowning in their sin. It's their sin that's sending them to hell. It's their sin that makes them the way that they are. But keep a tender heart for souls. Pray for those who may hate you. We find that verse in the Word of God. Loves, love sinners as Jesus Christ did. I can guarantee you that God's heart is breaking over the wickedness that he's watching take place in this world. But I can also guarantee you that God has nothing but love for the people that's committing those acts. John chapter 3, you're, you're there in John I want to take you quickly through the Gospels and just look at one verse in each one of those to show us the heart that God has for the people that are living in this world, that are not following him, that are not living for him, that are not doing right, that are not saved. But we see in John chapter 3, and boy, the the most familiar verse in all the Bible is there in verse 16, but I want you to see it again. Because when you see those words on the page, I I hope it'll mean something to you and, and remind you of just exactly how much God loves every single one of us. Verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God loved the world so... And it doesn't take long of reading through the rest of the Gospels and even into Acts and Romans to see the heart that God has. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't come and die on the cross because, okay, that person's worthy, or oh, that person stopped sinning, or that person is not as bad as some of those, so I'll die for this group, but I'm not going to die for them. I'll send my son for these people, but I'm not going to send it for those people. No, he loved us all so much that he sent his son to die for the entire world. We find this in Matthew chapter 9. Go back, go, go to Matthew 9, if you will. This is how much God loves sinners. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 13. But go ye and learn what meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Mark chapter 2. I told you we're going to go quickly through the Gospels. And if you can turn to these and keep up, then please do. If not, then, then, then just listen. That's fine. But Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 2 and verse number 17. When Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke chapter 5 and verse 32. I'll save you the time of turning over there because it says the exact same thing. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Will he have to bring his judgment? Absolutely God will have to bring his judgment, but it'll break his heart to have to do it. 2 Peter chapter 3, if you will, turn over there. 
2 Peter chapter 3, because what a, another verse that, that just shows us the heart of God and the heart that he has for those who are lost without him. God's not standing up in heaven reveling over the fact that one of these days I get to throw those dirty, rotten sinners into hell. God, that's not what God's doing in heaven. He's saying, please, I sent my son to die for you. I love you. I wouldn't have sent my only begotten son if I didn't love you. Please accept me as your savior. Please get right. Please. I don't want to have to do this. And he says that very plainly, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God does not want to have to condemn even one sinner to die. And I don't, I don't know the heart of God. I'm, I'm not God, obviously, but I can imagine that on the day of judgment, when, when those that go before him have to be condemned to hell because they rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior, I can imagine how it's going to hurt his heart and how his heart will ache to have to tell them, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. I never knew you. Could you imagine how that must break his heart? He created that person. He created you. You are his. You're special to him. He breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. He gives us every breath that we have. He gives us every blessing that we have. God loves you. God loves the world. And it's going to break his heart on the day that he has to condemn them to an eternity in a lake of fire. And it ought to do the same for us. I just sang that song and I told you I was going to reference it again. But let me see this world, dear Lord, as though I were looking through your eyes. A world of men that don't want you, Lord, but a world for which you died. Jesus Christ died for them when they didn't want him. Jesus Christ died for me when I didn't want him. Before I knew that I needed him, he died for me. Let me see this world, dear Lord, through your eyes when men mock your holy name. When they beat you and spat upon you, let me love them as you love them just the same. Boy, when you look at all of those things and you think about all the, all the things that we get upset about and all the things that we get turned inside out about, all the things that we don't like that, that might even come from this pulpit, but, but all the things that we see in the world that we don't like and all of those other things. Let me stand high above my petty problems and grieve for men hell bound eternally. For if once I could see this world the way you see, I just know I'd serve you more faithfully. Why is it that we don't win souls for Jesus Christ? Why is it that we don't tell others about Jesus? Because we don't see the world the way that God sees it. If we could see them as sinners on their way to hell who are going to die and spend an eternity in the lake of fire, if we don't tell them, it would change the way we see everybody around us. It would make us want to tell them how they can know for sure that they'll be saved. But when we see the world the way God sees it, we'll hate the sin, but we will love the sinner. We have to remember who their father is and why they do the things that they do. John chapter 8 and verse 44 makes that very clear. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. Of course, they're just following after the one that they belong to. Our job is to help them to be born again and become sons of God. You have to remember this. God did not command us to save a country. God commissioned us to seek the salvation of of individual souls. 
And the way that we're going to see this nation turn back to Christ is not to turn to political activism, not to turn to conservatism, not to rely on the talk radio hosts and all the politicians who are right-leaning and all of those other things. That's not the way that we're going to see this nation come back to Jesus Christ. The way that we're going to see this nation come back to Jesus Christ is to win them to Jesus Christ to see them repent of their sin, to see them turn to Jesus Christ, to see them put their faith and trust in him, that will change their life. To, to help them to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That will change their minds. That will change them towards conservatism. That will, that will change them politically. Boy, all these... You cannot vote for somebody, no matter what, party they claim to be a part of that's in favor of killing babies. Can't vote for somebody that's in favor of, of, of homosexuality and these homosexual marriages and all of those other things. Those things go against the word of God, and I know it's not popular to say that today. I know it's not popular to preach against those things today because, oh, we have to just be sensitive towards everybody. And I certainly I love those people because God loves those people. And I want to see them get saved more than anything else. I've, I've sat down with people on, in, in both of those camps and begged them to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior because that's what's going to change them. Outlawing this thing or outlawing that thing is not going to change their heart. The only thing that can change their heart is God. And certainly it helps us when we, when we ban abortion and we ban homosexuality and we ban those things, but that doesn't change their heart. It's the same way you look back in the, uh, in the prohibition area and, and alcohol was banned, right? Yeah, we got a great victory. Well, guess what happened? All that went underground. And it didn't stop. Maybe a few people didn't take a drink here and there because it was harder to get. But it still went on. It still happened because it wasn't changing their hearts. Only God can change their hearts. Political conservatism cannot do what God can do in somebody's heart. And I'm not saying that, you know, that, that, that every homosexual ought to be killed. I'm not saying that, that somebody has an abortion ought to be killed. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that there comes a time when we have to stand up for the things that the Bible is against. We have to stand against the things that the Bible is against. No matter who's offended by it. No matter who is, who, who is distraught by it. It's the word of God and we've got to stand for the truth of the word of God. And political conservatism cannot and does not do that. The best way for us to change the world is not by arguing and fighting against those who are doing those things, but to win them to Jesus Christ. We would spend less time arguing politically and more time winning souls. We'd have a lot more effect on bringing this nation back to Jesus Christ. In a wicked world, we should love the sinners, but also, number two, and I've already kind of alluded to this, we must preach the truth. What I'm essentially saying is that we should not compromise for the sake of loving the sinner. This generation is inundated with lies. Satan has done a masterful job of promoting a system that's built on falsehood. Only the truth can set people free. John chapter 8 and verse 32 makes that very clear. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free, shall make you free. We don't only preach from pulpits. We preach every single day of our lives. In our conversation, in our relationships, we must preach the truth. Through our way of living, we must preach the truth. By our attitudes and our responses, we preach the truth. John chapter 17 and verse 17 says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And I don't care what you say. 
politically. I don't care what you say uh, is, is true or not true. And it's the same, I mean, it's the same thing with this whole gender ideology and, oh, some guy that, that claims to be a woman and some woman that claims to be a guy. Oh, well, this is my truth. I'm living my truth. That's how, how, how often do you hear? Truth is not subjective. It's either true or it's false. It's either right or it's wrong. And what is the objective? It is the word of God. The word of God is not subjective. We cannot say, well, we can change this and change that and move this around and do that if we want to. No, the word of God is something that has stood the test of time. It's here to stay and nothing can change the word of God. Just because you say, well, things are changing and biology is changing. No, it's not. The word of God says male and female created he them. This doesn't change. And just because the winds of politics changes, just because people are getting a whole lot more offended today than they ever used to be, doesn't mean that we should change because the Bible didn't. And I know, again, I know it's not a popular thing to preach today because, oh, you're going to hurt somebody's feelings. And I'm not trying to hurt people's feelings. I'm not trying to make people feel bad. But truth is the truth, and that's what we have to preach. If we compromise on those things, we're going to be compromised in everything else. And then we're just like the rest of the world, and Christianity is no different than the rest of the world. Then what are we offering them? This issue of abortion has made national headlines over the past year or two because some of the laws that were passed, some of the things that were said about it. And First, we saw some of these insane laws making abortion legal almost up to birth. Some that were fighting and arguing that abortion should be legal even after birth. We, we just talked about that, but then we saw the overturn of, of Roe versus Wade and the things that were said in defense of abortion went far beyond just the argument that the mother has a right to kill the baby if she wants to. There were outright demands to kill more babies. I saw a billboard uh, that, that had a, it, it was a pro-life billboard. Defend the babies, it said, or something like that. And somebody crossed out defend and, and had taken a, a spray paint and wrote kill. Kill the babies. That's what it's all about for most of these people. You know, uh, and, and maybe there's a, a small percentage of them that are saying, well, it's, you know, the, the, the mother's right. She can do that if she wants to do it. But, but a lot of these abortion activists are out there saying, kill more babies. Tell me how that makes even any sense morally. Tell, tell me how a, a, a civilization can even continue when you have a huge faction of them saying, kill the, kill the babies. The things that, that were said in, in defense of, of abortion are just appalling, and we ought to be willing to proclaim the truth about the sanctity of human life. We should not be on the sidelines afraid to speak out about it. I can promise you this, those that are in favor of killing babies are not a, a, a sitting on the sidelines afraid to say anything about it. They'll let you know exactly where they stand. They'll make it very known that they're in favor of killing babies. And we ought to make it very known that we support the sanctity of human life. That's a life that was created by God. That was a life that, that God has a purpose for. And that's a life that God can use to accomplish his purpose in this life. Boy, there's stories, so many stories of those who went on and accomplished great things, not, just even, not, not even just for Christ, although there's many stories in that way too, but stories of those who, whose mothers were uh, recommended to have an abortion and to kill that child because it's got this defect or that defect in the womb. And many times the baby's born and doesn't even have the defect that the doctors thought they had. But number two, the baby is born and that baby with the defect that it has goes on and changes the world. It's not all right to decide. We don't get to play God with a human life. 
Someone I read when many of these extremely pro-abortion laws were being passed in the liberal states said this, maybe I speak too soon, but I feel like some sort of threshold has been crossed. It seems like most conservatives are finally speaking out against abortion openly and aggressively. This is very new. I hope we sustain it. Maybe we could actually see some real change in that case. Maybe he's right. But it should not be the conservatives politically who are speaking out the loudest against it. It should be Christians. It's too bad that it can't be said. It, it seems like most Christians are finally speaking out against abortion openly and aggressively. Perhaps if we had done it sooner, we wouldn't have all the laws in the books that we have now. But they, they talk about a baby as if it's just a, a fetus and, and not a, a human, not a person. By the way, fetus is Latin for children, offspring, bringing forth, hatching of young. Look, at it, look it up on Wikipedia. It says it right there on the front page. That's what a fetus is. Saying it's not a child, it's a fetus is like saying it's not a human, it's a homo sapien. It's the same thing. A fetus, it's a baby who is, who is developing into a human uh, 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 that, is going to be, that is going to live on the outside of the womb. But it's a human no matter what stage you kill it in. It's a single cell. It's a human. It's going to become a baby. It's going to become a, a young person. It's going to become an adult. It's going to live life on its own. And just because right now it's only one cell, or, or, or as they say, a conglomeration of cells, didn't suddenly become a living, breathing human being only after it was born. It was, a, it was a human being inside the mother. What they're pushing for now is these late-term abortions, the fact that a baby can be, be killed all the way up until seconds after it's born, or in some cases, even a couple of weeks after it's born. And you don't, do, you, do you realize what they do with a lot of these things? Hey, we ought, to, we ought to make it so that babies are allowed to be killed a month after they're born. And everybody's, oh, no, that's too much. Okay, okay. We'll make it to, the, uh, to, to be on the day that they're born. They, they always go way beyond what people think is normal so that when they back it up, okay, now that's, that's not as bad. All right, they can only be killed on the day that they're born, not a month after they're born, right? And that's the way they, they, keep, they keep pushing it farther and farther and farther, and we keep allowing those concessions. Eventually, it's going to be legal for babies to be killed after they're two years old. In the case of our former Virginia governor, he's, he's advocating that, that these babies can be killed after they're born. And, and, and I, don't, I don't understand it. He was a, he was a, 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 a neurological doctor for, for children. I mean, how can you see that baby? And how can you say, well, that baby's two years old, and I'm going to do everything I can to save that baby's life, but he's only two weeks old. Let's kill it. It doesn't make any sense. I've known many people who have given birth to babies up to 12 or 15 weeks early, and that number of weeks early is growing by the day because of our medical advancements and things like that. There's babies that are, that are born, you know, 25 weeks in the womb. I mean, it's, it's amazing how long, a, 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 I mean, how young a baby can be born and live and sustain life. And while it's not born yet, it's, it's only 30 weeks, so we can still kill it, and it's not a baby. If that baby had been born five weeks earlier, it would be just fine outside of the womb right now. It's a life. The argument often is, uh, you know, it's part of the mother's body, and she can do with it what she wants. I'm not trying to be uh, 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 snarky, but a wart is a part of a mother's body, and she can do with, it, with that what she wants. A baby is a living, breathing, viable human being that's being killed because the mother thinks she has the right to take that life. 
A baby is, is, is separately growing amazingly inside her, and when it's developed, it will live independently just as the mother does. It doesn't belong to the mother because it's a wonderful life that God created. See, if a, if a wart grew a brain and grew a, a heartbeat and, and, and legs and could eventually live and breathe on its own, I would say the same thing about that. The truth is there is no part of a woman's body that does what a baby does. Turn over to Psalm 139, because I want you to listen to what David has to say about the formation of a baby in the womb. Psalm 139 and verse 13. You have this argument that, oh, a baby is just a conglomeration of cells. It's just a fetus. It's just this. It's just that. Verse number 13. For thou hast possessed my reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned when as yet there was none of them. That baby was a life in the eyes of God before it even became a single cell in the mother's womb, let alone after it started to form. One of the big arguments for late-term abortion is that if the life of the mother is threatened, then you have every right to kill the baby. And that's where a lot of conservatives even draw the line. Well, if the mother's life is threatened, then it's okay to have an abortion. I'm paying attention to be sensitive because no mother is excited to die in childbirth. No mother saying, ah, I want to, I hope I die when my child is born. No, no, no mother is, you know, when they find out, and, and this, many doctors will tell you this, hey, uh, you know, you can have a baby and the baby can be born healthy, but you might die in the process. And no mother says, well, please let me die. Right? I'm, I'm trying to be sensitive to that because I understand that. But first of all, do you think that God doesn't know what's going on with the life of that baby and the life of that mother? God knows exactly what's going on with both of them. And many times, doctors are wrong. And many times, the baby is born healthy, the mother's life is spared, and everybody's just fine. Don't you think that God can work a miracle in the life of a mother who seems to be threatened with death? Delivery still happens in, in late-term abortions, by the way. When they, when they inject that baby to kill it and to take that baby's life, the mother still has to deliver that baby. And the mother's life is still just as much in jeopardy when she delivers that dead baby as it is if she's delivering a live baby. You're suggesting that a woman who had died during the, the delivery of a live baby might survive during the delivery of a poisoned one? Do you realize the insanity of that statement? Jeremiah chapter 1, verse number 5 says this. Before I formed thee in the belly. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. I'm not trying to offend anyone. But someone, and a whole lot of someones, has to defend the unborn who cannot speak for themselves. It's, it's this and so many other truths that we should be proclaiming as Christians. It's not politics or arguments or reasoning that's going to bring this nation back to God. It's the truth that will set men free. And we should be proclaiming that truth. Lastly, I want to say this very quickly as we close. Turn over to Habakkuk chapter 3. It's in the Old Testament, near the end of the Old Testament. But in a working world, we should love sinners. We should proclaim the truth. 
And number three, we should pray for mercy. Holy remnants do make a difference in this world. There might be only five or 10 or 15 or, or 10,000 Christians left. But those Christians can make a difference. Praying people hold back judgment. Praying people advance God's work. Prayer works. Didn't Abraham get God to change his mind and hold back his judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah for a time because he asked that God would allow the salvation of Sodom and Gomorrah if they could only find 10 righteous? And God said, all right, if you can find 10 righteous, I'll, I'll, I'll hold back my judgment. Prayer works. That was Abraham's prayer. That was, he begged God for mercy if he could just find those 10 righteous, and God agreed. We have so many more righteous than 10 in America. Perhaps if we could get on our knees, if we would get on our knees and beg God for his mercy, we could see that revival. If we would, if we would get serious about prayer, we could see God do something amazing in this nation again. Will you be one of those people? Like Habakkuk there in Habakkuk chapter 3 on the, on the eve of judgment. Make this your prayer. O Lord, verse number 2, Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 2. O Lord, I've heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known in wrath, remember mercy. Will you be willing to intercede to God on behalf of this nation? Perhaps if we could go to God and say, God, if we could just find 10 righteous, would you spare this nation? Would you turn this nation around? Would you do something once again in our nation? Are they wicked? Absolutely. But so were you once. God showed you mercy, and he wants to show forth mercy to everyone. I want you to look at one last passage, and we're done. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to close with this. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 9. First Peter chapter 2 and verse number 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in times past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, Abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. See, many Christians are frustrated by their inability to change society. We get involved in political activism, and we, we go to rallies, and we do this, and we do all that. I say we. I'm, I'm, I don't know how many of you are involved, and I don't do it very much. I, I've been to a couple of them. But, you know, why, why are we not changing? Oh, you know, how do people not understand conservative values? How do they not understand this? Why are they not? You know, how can they vote this way? How can they do that? And we get frustrated by those things because the truth is we, we can't change society. Christians may serve as salt and light. We can, we can restrain that evil and, and we can point to the goodness of God, but our story does not end with us ruling. It ends with Jesus Christ ruling. He's the king. His kingdom is going to come. Until then, we ought to love sinners. We ought to preach the truth. and We ought to pray for mercy. There's other things that we can do, but those are the things that we must be doing.
God had to lay certain things in your heart. And like I said at the beginning, God, God gives every single person of, of different abilities, different talents in, in different areas. But every single one of us ought to be loving sinners. We ought to be willing to preach the truth. We ought to be praying for mercy. Those are things that we can all do in a wicked world. If we want to see God do something in this nation again, we must get back to the basics of the word of God. Loving those sinners enough to share the message of the gospel with them. Loving the truth enough that we're not willing to back down from it no matter who says it's not the truth anymore. If it's in the word of God, it's the truth. And we ought to stand for it. We ought to preach it. And we ought to pray for mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. That's what Habakkuk prayed. And that's what we ought to pray. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Hard to, it's hard to, to see how God is holding back his wrath on this nation. But he's long-suffering. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And he's given us this time to help lead them to the cross. Love sinners. Preach the truth. Pray for mercy. That's something every single one of us can do. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you for your goodness to us. God, I know this is kind of a hard message. It's, it's a message that's not popular anymore for the sake of not offending somebody. And you know my heart. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, try, I'm trying not to offend people. But God, it's the truth. It's the truth of the word of God. And we have to stand on it. We have to preach it. We have to proclaim it. What a job and what a responsibility we have. God, more than anything, I pray that you give us a love for souls, a love for the people that, that you've put into our path, the people that we have contact with, the people that we know. I pray that you give us, give us such a love for them that we'd be willing to share the gospel with them. And God, I pray that you'd help us be effective in changing this world for Jesus Christ, not because we get involved in politics, not because we get involved in all these other causes, even though those causes many times are good. But I pray that you'd help us to get involved in the cause of spreading the message of the gospel and that that would change this country and turn it back to you. Well, thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would please stand at your seats.